Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Gabe Amo was sworn in this week as Rhode Island's newest congressman, the first black person ever elected to Congress from the state. Plus, illegal votes and controversy about a New Hampshire Republican forced to resign after admitting he hadn't lived in the district that elected him for more than a year. And executives of the Martha's Vineyard Steamship Authority were outed for covering up details of a ferry boat accident. These stories and more during our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, the MacArthur Foundation recently announced the members of the 2023 class of Genius Fellows. They join an exclusive group of previous fellows who have demonstrated outstanding talent in their fields. And so if you put together the emissions and the growth, which is taking up some of those emissions, the other piece of the puzzle that we've been working on is measuring the gas in the air in the city. Boston University professor Lucy Hutira is one of four local awardees, part of our series, The Genius Next Door. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Hi, Arnie. Great to be back. Also with me, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and Target 12 investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island. Thanks for joining us, Ted. Glad to be back, Callie. And Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI. Welcome, Steve. Hiya, Callie. And I'm starting with you, Steve, because I want to be clear that I said uh, the Martha's Vineyard Steamship Authority people were outed, but they were not ousted (laughs) from their jobs, which is the issue for a lot of people. This was a very serious uh, boating, a ferry boat accident. Um, Before you respond to it, here's WBZ Boston discussing the ferry that broke loose in August. An investigation determined that the ferry was berthed for the day when it when its bow line slipped just this is just last month weather conditions forced a second line to slip and the vessel then hit the dock at the woods hole oceanographic institution but that's a problem that that nobody knew about it steve (laughs) a big problem and uh, there's a number of different flags about this story and i think that's why it's really has had legs this actually happened in july which was the busiest moment here on Cape Cod. And really the wonder is that no one was injured and that there wasn't any real damage here. And what happened is that this this is a big freight ferry we're talking about, and it was unattended at the dock, tied off the way it typically is between runs. And somehow it slipped its lines and drifted across the harbor in Woods Hole until it came to rest at a dock owned by one of the big scientific institutions here And in the process, it was endangering the local channel, which is busy with boat traffic, especially in July, and that had to be shut down. And then even when this big freight ferry came to rest, blown against the southern dock, and the ferry line employees realized what had happened, it was was a puzzle for them to figure out what to do. And eventually, they had to run around to the southern dock with a ladder and lay alongside the the ship and climb up so they could get aboard to drive the ship back to where it belonged. Uh, so it's uh, troubling that this happened, but then 
an investigation has come out that it turns out that for at least two or three days prior to the incident, other employees had noticed this boat being tied up improperly. They had sent emails about it, including a photograph of the way the lines were tied, and they'd had conversations, and yet somehow no proper remedy had ever been put in place. And, and the fact that this was uh, after it happened, the Steamship Authority officials kind of deliberately seemed to downplay it, and they created a report about what happened and kind of buried it. And eventually one of our local papers got it through a Freedom of Information Act that the Steamship Authority fought and the paper won and they got this report and it turns out that there was a lot more here. And even the one of the authorities governing boards wasn't informed of the real nature of this incident. So just the way it's come out has raised a lot of questions about uh, an, uh, you know, an operation that has a lot of people usually staring at it and asking questions about how it's run. Yes, that was what I wanted to pick up because, Steve, this is, you know, one more thing about how badly run the Steamship Authority is. I'm speaking as somebody who's on it enough, and just every time I get on it, I pray, please just let me get from A to B. But this is bad, and it doesn't seem that anybody ever has to pay the consequences. Uh, I think there are a lot of questions about the the culture at that operation there and the safety culture and the and the fact that it operates kind of without supervision. It's a an authority, which means that, you know, it's it's not directly answerable to anybody within the state. It operates sort of in this gray ground between being a public business or or a private business. And it gets to set its own terms, its own rates. It gets to regulate its own competition. In fact, nobody else can run ferries to the islands without their say-so. So there are a lot of questions about the way this operation is run. And there's a sense that it's kind of clubby and uh, and not really long-term. There's not a lot of long-term thinking there about the impact on the region. So uh, Artie uh, and Ted, before you guys weigh in, let me just say this. Had I not been watching regularly the reality show, um, the uh, uh, the yacht uh, under on the Mediterranean yacht series, I would not know how dangerous this is because they spend a lot of time, even though it's a reality show and a crazy one, talking about tying up that yacht and how important it is and how those lines have to be just so. And Captain Sandy and Captain Lee have, you know, really lowered the boom on a bunch of people who've almost ha- made them have an accident. So this is very serious. I just want everybody to know it's not a small thing that they were covering up. But go ahead, Arnie. What's so serious is that they've known for days. They knew for days there was a problem here. I mean, if, if you're learning about how serious it is by watching a reality TV show, imagine the boys that actually do this for a living. I mean, I hate to break it to you, Callie, but they should have incredible awareness. And, and I'm going to lift a comment out of here, Steve, so please apologize, but this was a comment under the article. How does failure to inform the board of a serious situation compounded by negligence nurture the culture of openness? I thought that was just a brilliant comment. And I guess that's the question. How do they how do they actually look people in the face and acknowledge what has happened and that somehow they want to be open and transparent? Excuse me, you need Freedom of Information Act requests to even get to this kind of information? This should have been disclosed immediately. Exactly. Name of the show, by the way, is Below Deck Mediterranean. Go ahead, Ted. I mean, I think uh, you you guys hit on the apart from the danger of the actual accident potentially. The is the the 
uh, obliqueness of how the steamship authority, who's responsible for this, who do you hold accountable as voters, right? Because I'm looking at, I was looking at their website preparing for the show, you know, there's a seven member advisory board known as the port council, but there's also the actual board of the authority and the authority's board members are, are appointed by one resident each from Nantucket, Barnstable, Martha's Vineyard, Falmouth and New Bedford. And it says on their website, the New Bedford person's term expired in 2017. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's just a bad website, but it just goes to kind of, I've seen this with all sorts of quasi-public agencies in Rhode Island and Massachusetts, where when when you can't tell who's in charge and everyone can point at each other, you really often have a lack of accountability. And it sure seems like the Steamship Authority is really suffering from that. Yeah, I'm ready for the, somebody to lower the boom on them. Um, speaking of people who um, were secretive and, and the secrets just came out, Arnie, um, so we have Democratic representatives. Murner, Tory Murner, who's been living out of the district for more than a year, and that would mean he's also voting. This is illegal, and yet we've just recently found out about it. Well, he's not a Democratic representative. He's a Republican representative. But a Democratic representative said that he had told her that the leadership didn't want him to leave because they needed his vote because it was so close between Republicans and Democrats. So let me just set this up for you, everyone. So we have 400 members in the New Hampshire legislature. I mean, this is insane. Each one of them is represented by, they represent about 3,300 people. So basically, I could actually meet the entire, you know, group of folks that rep- that he, uh, that, ele- that potentially elect him. So he's in a, a small rural district in the northern part of New Hampshire. He moved out of the district before he not only voted in Lancaster when he wasn't living in Lancaster, but not only was he voting in Lancaster, he was running as if he represented Lancaster to serve in the New Hampshire legislature. So he lied when he voted, he lied when he said that that he was representing them, and then he served for literally an entire term where so many votes went down by one, by one. Let me remind everyone of this. In addition to which, to make this even more toxic, you know, oh, we care about legislation, you know, election integrity, it turned out that the attorney general was informed, I believe sometime in March, okay, that there was a problem here. So March 22nd is when the attorney general was informed that this guy did not live in the district. Now, we're not talking about going to Cucamonga. We're not talking about, you know, millions of people. We're talking about 3,000 people that I could have walked up and introduced myself to. It took him till September 18th, the Republican appointed attorney general to officially give notice to the speaker's office that Ooh, this guy doesn't live here. He probably voted illegally and probably he shouldn't be sitting. So instead of physically removing him, they asked him to resign. How do you resign from a position you never really had? I'm just <laughs> asking you. Wow. And it just, I mean, it just turns out that everybody is complicit. The attorney general is complicit. The speaker is complicit. The majority leader is complicit. It was kind of like an open, dirty secret. And, uh, and to wait months, to wait months for the attorney general to inform the speaker until after the legislative session when you realize it's literally a hair between Republicans and Democrats. In fact, right now, it's, I think, a one-vote margin. And we're looking at two special elections happening probably around the same time as the Republican primary for president. So I just want everyone to know the question then becomes, what about all those votes that he voted on? Yeah. 
passed by one, do we throw them all out? Do we revote for them again in the next fall? I mean, I just want, if this is about election integrity, a pox on you, especially the attorney general. He is the person I'm the most disappointed in because he knew for months and did niente. And you know why? Because it was a, they were playing a game with us and they thought somehow we wouldn't notice. Well, now the outrage is enormous. And you have Republican former state senators and Democratic former state senators who are asking for an investigation of everybody. And I just, I just want people to know you need to trust the vote. But when it's open and disclosed and you do nothing about it, then guess what? You're part of that scheme. Wow. Well, it's interesting um, to me because uh, I can make this a bipartisan problem down in Rhode Island because my team at PRI a few years back uh, discovered, partly from undercover reporting, that uh, I, the number two guy in the budget writing committee, longtime Democrat, uh, was living in a different district. He'd been... <laughs> Uh, clearly pretending to live in his district for ages. It was kind of an open secret, as you said, Arnie, up there in New Hampshire. And we thought as soon as we aired our first report, the pressure would be enormous. He'd have to resign, et cetera. And what we found was all the Democratic leadership just wanted to look away. Well, you know, it's really up to his local voters. You know, maybe they don't mind that he, you know, I don't know where he lives. I don't go home with him each night, you know, week after week. And it was only when it happened to be a campaign year and the state reps were knocking doors in their other districts and hearing from people in doors like, hey, I keep seeing on the news, this guy clearly doesn't live there. None of you care. I'm outraged about this. Uh, and that's what finally led to the pressure uh, to do an investigation. Even the investigating body didn't actually want to take action until they were kind of forced to do so because he asked a former colleague in the police department to write him fake parking tickets. Oh my God. The no. fake address. And we had good sources in the police department. So we found out and, and God bless the police officer who was the whistleblower and didn't feel comfortable with that. That was what did him in. But if it had been up to the Democrats in office, oh, wow. they'd have just looked away at the state house and let him stay on. Wow. Oh, but this is the attorney general. I mean, a Part of the problem is, is that, you know, we're, we're moving up the, the, the food chain here. I mean, it's it's one thing if everybody knows, but nobody reports it. But when you report it to the attorney general that you know this guy is basically not living in district, he voted illegally, he shouldn't be serving. Think about that poor woman in Texas that they wanted to send to jail for five years because she was on probation and asked if she could vote. I mean, look at the difference here. You've got Texas doing one thing, and then you have New Hampshire winking and nodding, just the way they were winking and nodding in Rhode Island. I'm wow. sorry. There has to be one standard set of rules. Let's play by them. But this story, especially in light of the fact that we're playing presidential politics and Donald Trump is talking about a stolen election. Excuse me. Sorry. Mm. Steve, uh, I'm thinking about the community that he represents and just how small that is. And it's hard to yes. believe that someone felt that they could get away with that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Here on Cape Cod, someone would notice for sure if you moved out of the district, 3,300 <laughs> people and, and not just, a you know, a functionary. This is your state rep. This is a high profile guy. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN, Ted Nisi, investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island, and Steve Junker, managing editor of news for CAI on Cape Cod. We're discussing the latest news in the region you may have missed. All right, let's have some good news, at least. Um, Ted, first uh, Black person ever elected in Rhode Island, becoming the first black congressman. Wow. Yeah, 200 plus years, obviously, of uh, electing people to Congress. Never it's been all white people. There was one woman uh, <laughs> in that in that group. But now Gabe Amo, he's uh, 35 years old. He's 
worked for President Obama and Biden. He uh, also worked for Governor Gina Raimondo, who, of course, now is U.S. Commerce Secretary. Um, got the political bug young as a, a Pawtucket uh, boy growing up. Uh, he's the son of immigrants from West Africa, from Ghana and Liberia. Um, his father owns a liquor store. His mother is a nurse. So uh, he campaigned on really, a, a you know, it's a little corny, but a true American dream story. His parents came to this country, worked really hard, made sure he got a good education. And, you know, within a generation, he's elected to Congress. He won that really, I think we might've talked about it earlier in the year. This was David Cicilline's old seat. Right, exactly. Uh, which came open when he re resigned to take a nonprofit CEO job in Rhode Island. And there was this huge, crowded, complicated, messy primary all through the summer. And Gabe Amo was not winning as late as two weeks before the primary. It was kind of the... Um, I hesitate to say moderate. He's sort of a normal liberal Democrat like Obama or Biden, but also not a far left, a left wing progressive type like some of the others. And he campaigned on his experience working for other elected officials, as well as his personal story and his kind of down the line Democratic parties. And it won the day. So what there were 16 at last count, as I recall, people vying for that seat. And there were a number of people with names, I would say, folks, Absolutely. you know, who who were known. Um, and I, you've explained a little bit about what appealed to folks, but but I, I, I'm just stunned by it, I have to say. Well, part <laughs> of it, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, Arnie's the practical politician among the three of us, but I would say. And I'll give you my practical approach. So keep, so keep yeah. going, Well, and I think for him, you know, I, I've covered politics long enough myself to say usually it's a combination of, you know, a good candidate, a good campaign and luck. Right. You need both. And he got multiple breaks, uh, including devastating scandals that took out stronger ah, um, yes. the lieutenant governor uh someone she hired to collect ballot signatures forged a ton of them it appears mm. which became a weeks-long we're talking about election integrity became a weeks-long scandal that still isn't fully resolved the criminal investigation there so that knocked her out of the mix uh, even though she never dropped out um another candidate uh, my station actually our team discovered uh, this wealthy investor who'd never been in politics before had been told by Williams College he couldn't return because he made an inappropriate overture to a student when he was teaching there, um, when he was at Williams. And that became a scandal that kind of pushed him out of the way. Um, then there was a strong left-wing candidate who uh, I think had a strong 20-something percent of the vote, but was never going to appeal to a bigger swath. And as the field narrowed, Gabe Amel with a very broad message to as many Democrats as possible and a good candidacy. He was a good fundraiser and all that. He he won the day, but it was it was quite a roller coaster uh, primary summer here. Let's uh, hear Gabe Amo speaking after he was sworn in. Thank you to the people of the first congressional district and those across Rhode Island for giving me the opportunity to serve in the people's house. Everyone from Woonsocket to Newport, East Providence to Cumberland, Providence to Bristol, and of course, the great city of Pawtucket. All right, Arnie, go ahead. Well, you know, I, so I called a friend of mine who covers politics as well in Rhode Island, and she said something really interesting. And she said he not only had a compelling Rhode Island story, he had an equally compelling D.C. story. Mm -hmm. so he's very, very well known because he worked with Biden and a lot of his campaign ads had images of Obama and Biden in them. We know that the former Congressman Kennedy endorsed him. So there was this real sense that he was not only 
immersed in in sort of the life of Rhode Island, but they knew him in D.C. And if you're going to run down to D.C. and you're going to be needed right away, you better hit the ground running. Mm. And they got a real sense that he could hit the ground running and take a look at who he's replacing. Cicilline is so important to people who were devastated when he left. And to a large extent, um, Gabe was probably the most um, recognizable person to replace him because he knew where the bathrooms were he knew where the players were he knew the the landscape of dc and that was going to be important if you were going to have a strong voice for rhode island you know what steve i was uh reminded when i learned his story of thinking about tim scott who ostensibly on the other side had the same story you know it's been around he's done his work and i i'm an american dream story and it just didn't work for him it didn't work for him, but I think Gabe Amo, I, I love that his fascination with public service politics began so early and that he used his public, you know, his political history to his advantage. He was not running away from it. And in mm -hmm. the end, he was able to, to really create momentum out of that. And I think that speaks, that sends such a good message to young people who look for models about how to make an impact in this country. And and we that last story we talked about where people are just disgusted by politicians like this is the flip side. This is where exactly you know, people get involved early and they really have an opportunity to make a difference. And now he's appointed to the Foreign Affairs Committee. I mean, it's just it's it's a great story. Well, and Callie, just one quick thing, as you were saying that, you know, we went from the Myrna story to the Gabe story, which is really a wonderful story. I've always said that politics is the place where I practice hope. And when you see this kind of a win and you see this kind of a story, it isn't just a Rhode Island story. It's a it is an American story. It's a story for America, and look what you can become. All right. Um, back to you, Ted, because I'm fascinated by the the tweeting <laughs> <laughs> attorney general. Um, this guy, Peter Nerona. Nerona. Um, apparently, just whatever he's feeling, he expresses on, <laughs> we really should call it X, it's formerly Twitter, but everybody gets my drift. He's got a lot to say, and a judge told him to shut up, and he Keeps going. How is this possible? <laughs> yeah, Kelly, uh, AG Nero, the And the funny thing here is, you know, he, it, Peter Nerona did not have this kind of political profile. He was a U.S. attorney. He was very much seen as kind of a Boy Scout type, uh, you know, all about the he's a prosecutor, law and order guy, you know, you know, very well respected. He's so well respected. He had faced no opponents in his first run for attorney general in the primary or the general election. Um, and so, you know, people sort of didn't even have a full sense of the guy. And then all of a sudden in the last year or so, I would say he started to like tweet things that weren't kind of anodyne you know my office announced today a settlement in the case of blah 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 blah. he would he would like give a quick opinion and then he started to fight with the governor who they did not like each other and the governor doesn't really do that kind of thrust in parry whereas nerona has no problem with it so he like campaigned against the governor trying to not give him a budget increase then he's he's popping off as you just said callie about a judge who he thinks is way too lenient in bench trials now that judge has called him into court december 5th seemingly to explain his tweets um and it's you know it's interesting i always as a reporter i don't want to be overly critical of an extremely transparent public official when we're always calling for transparency but I know there's some folks who watch this and say, like, how much is too much? Like, do do I need to know this much of your hour by hour thoughts on everything under the sun? Uh, it's interesting. But, you know, it's he's you know, I wouldn't directly compare him to Trump just because he's not necessarily saying super out there things all the time. But he is very, very, very active on Twitter uh, or, or X or whatever we're calling it. And it's it's definitely got people talking. 
Here's a quote from him. Look, there's a lot of Twitter bullies out there. If you're talking about people who tell me to shut my mouth, if they are a political player, they should expect to get a response. There's no connection with what this judge asked me to do. Huh? Okay. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you begin to realize that there is a seduction of social media. I mean, it's it's seductive. And as I'm listening to the story about the AG, I'm thinking, all the song that goes through my, my head, you're so vain. <laughs> you probably think this song is about you. I mean, that's really how I feel. It's like all of a sudden he realized, oh, wow, look at the attention. And he likes it and he wants more of it. Well, Steve, I was trying to imagine um, Andrea, just (laughs) our attorney general, just, you know, going crazy on Twitter. Not going to (laughs) happen. Not going to happen. And it's his right to tweet, as he points out here. But I think it does say something about him to voters that he feels like his opinions and ideas about all sorts of topics, not just his job, deserve airing in public. And Mm -hmm. and I think it does conjure up that familiar sense of narcissism that that raises a flag for many people. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm here with Arnie Arneson, Ted Nisi, and Steve Junker. We're talking about the news you should know across the region. So, Steve, um, in your area, there has been a lot of concern about these offshore wind lines under beaches. So, you know, there's been rallies, there's been folks filing petitions to talk about it. Folks are very upset. Before you weigh in, this is Suzanne Connolly, who's a Cape Cod resident. She spoke on Commonwealth Beacon's podcast about her concerns over a beach that might be impacted by offshore wind transmission cables. It has become, a because of its nature, a wildlife uh, refuge, uh, not officially, but the wildlife abounds. Uh, in front of the beach is a um, complex habitat that should be left untouched. And one of the features of, of the place is a handicap accessible fishing pier uh, that is used heavily by uh, members of our community who are mobility impaired. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful place. So they're worried about disturbing all of that uh, with these transmission lines. I think it's such a fascinating contest between most of these people are environmentally conscious. They want green energy, and yet it's hard for to reconcile that with bringing a power cable ashore. Uh, it's just been discussion that's been going on and on here for a number of years now. And another aspect of this is a number of these companies that have proposed these specific lines in particular are now backing off on their plans to build their wind farms because uh, the economic environment has changed so much for what it means to build a wind farm. So there's every step of the way as we've been covering the the construction of offshore wind, and it's now just really starting with Vineyard Wind putting its first turbines out there in the last month and a half or so, every step of the way they've had to invent a process. And the way the process works right now is that each wind farm runs its own extension cord to the land, essentially. So you end up with these extension cords running all over the seabed, kind of plugging into different parts of the grid. And there's a real sense that that they can't really go on that way. And at some point they have to consolidate and run one or two really big power lines ashore and and serve the wind farm area that way. But it's all in flux right now. And 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 it's got a lot of people watching. That's for sure. Anything to weigh in on, uh, Arnie? How disruptive will these cables be? I keep thinking of all the telecommunication cables that go under the ocean and whatever else, and I don't know where they are. So they've been around for a long time, but I'm just kind of concerned about what are we talking about? I mean, you may be building a line and then you could replace it and how deep is it gonna be? And and again, 
change is hard. I mm. get it. And I also think you're probably right that we probably need to figure out how to consolidate. And maybe this will be the way to force the consolidation you were suggesting as opposed to having a bunch of different lines. But it, it does raise the question, we want a result, but we don't want to get to that result. And I'm sorry, I think but you have to grow up and do it. Just to jump in, I think that's spot on, Arnie. I mean, look at the housing yeah. crisis in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Yeah. Like, I, it just there is... Mm. For all the happy talk from the politicians, even a lot of voters about, you know, we want green energy, we want affordable housing, et cetera. It, it sometimes feels like every single significant project that comes up runs into this buzzsaw of deeper yep. reviews and lawsuits and 50 different, uh, you know, types of opposition. And just people do have the right, of course, to feel that way, but then they can't be shocked when things happen, like how, housing prices skyrocket, exactly. uh, energy goals aren't met, et cetera, uh, if, we, if we can't build anything. Well, back to you, Arnie. New Hampshire is uh, going to have a presidential primary no matter what uh, President Biden uh, wanted, which is and is doing, having the first primary for the Democrats in South Carolina. So they've set January 23rd as the primary date. What does this mean exactly? The Democrats made a big mistake. I'm just telling you right now. And, 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 and it's not because I want to protect the New Hampshire primary. Frankly, I am concerned about Joe Biden. Joe Biden did not really have a primary contest. and He wasn't really required to run in 2020. Remember, it was the pandemic and everybody was hermetically sealed. OK, so mm -hmm. he's there. And so now he is running. And again, he's running as a reelect. And he gets nothing out of the decision to move it to South Carolina. Frankly, given the fact that, you know, the conga line of Republicans other than Trump, you know, I've been showing up in Iowa and showing up in New Hampshire, instead of having a voice here that could offer a clear contrast between the Nikki Haley's, between the Chris Christie's and whatever, there's niente, there's nothing. So you have all this national press in Iowa, all this national press in New Hampshire. And excuse me, where's the national press in South Carolina? Oh, there is none. Okay. So that, that's part of the problem. In addition to which you have RFK Jr. now deciding to run as an independent. You only have Maureen Williamson, I think, you know, on the ballot. We're probably going to have some kind of write-in, but that's going to look tepid and pathetic. And it, it just, I understand change and change was important, but this was not the year to make the change from New Hampshire and Iowa. I, I understand he's ticked off because he didn't do well in New Hampshire and Iowa, but guess what? He was going to do totally fine again. And more importantly, we needed to hear that voice. What do you mean by Bidenomics? What do you mean by the climate crisis? What is your plans for immigration? But all those are muddled because he doesn't have a role to play in both the caucus and the primary. And so what does it mean? It means that we have to follow the law in New Hampshire, that we go one week after the, you know, the caucus and one week before everybody else. It's the law. It's not run by the par uh, parties. It's run by the state. And, you know, the, the uh, Secretary of State Scanlon did what the law required. And now everyone's like, oh, I'm shocked. I'm shocked. No, you should have been shocked months ago, you know, and frankly, it was a mistake. And I don't think it played out politically. And in the end, this is about raw politics and what has to happen in 2024 in November, not what happens in January or February. But if you're not here, you may impact the result of 2024 in November. Ted and Steve, you cover um, politics. So what do you think's going to be the deal on January 23rd? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's I just so as someone who's not in New Hampshire, but of course, every reporter and political report in country is going to be covering those results. It's going to be very hard to explain to people, viewers. Okay. Well, the president just got shellacked in quote unquote Democratic primary. But no, it's not really the Democratic primary because he didn't want it to be. Thank you. He didn't file. Well, he, he except some people ran him as a write in. Like it's just, you know, if they didn't have the muscle to get this massive change through and they should have known what they were based on New Hampshire's history, what they were biting off. Um. I don't know, for a president with as many doubts about his capacity to run again to not 
compete in and be present for the iconic start of the presidential race, it's I just think it's only going to add to their troubles. Maybe it won't matter long term, but it, as Arnie said, it seems like a political mistake. Yeah, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm fascinated to know how the press covers it. Really, the mm. that's the other side of it. As as people who've been watching elections unroll the same way every four years, and suddenly we have a change in the in the system, and how do we explain that to to our listeners? And how do we explain what the results mean? It's it's really going to be a challenge. But Steve, how do you explain what a write-in means when the write-in has no meaning? I, I mean, let's write. I want you to write in Joe Biden, but we're going to ignore it anyway. I mean, that's why I'm fascinated. Oh, my God. <laughs> Talk about a non-motivator. It's unbelievable. And again, nobody has played this out. And frankly, Biden didn't play it out. And I think it's becoming more and more obvious that this was a mistake. The problem is now he has to live with that mistake because the DNC made it. So uh, it, it's going to be impossible to explain. That's the sad part. Well, I will say that at the time they made the decision, um, looking long term, he seemed to be trying to take a stand on, I want to have a primary, the first primary, that begins in a place that's a little bit more diversified in its population. That seemed to make sense. People didn't like it because, as we know, New Hampshire prides itself on being the first. But that did make sense at the time. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, politics changes so fast. And so what could have been... it. You kind of characterize it as a mistake now, but what could have been kind of a thoughtful, breaking free, maverick move became something else when a lot of other stuff changed. Joe Biden ate a maverick. No, no. Well, I'm just I mean, saying. I'm just saying that to you. I, I think your your point about the rationale makes a lot of sense, Callie, but it just seems like it was in a fantasy land where New Hampshire exactly. rights were not going to you know, just fight viciously to keep their primary. We know that's what they do in New Hampshire. So if Biden didn't have some plan to undermine them, why pick the fight? All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, As always, I enjoy a vibrant conversation with you all. So thank you for joining me. Thanks, Callie. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Callie. Arnie Arneson is the host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson from WNHN. Ted Nisi is politics and business editor and Target 12 investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island. And Steve Junker is managing editor of news for CAI on Cape Cod. Coming up, every year, leaders and innovators in various fields of study are recognized for their work by the MacArthur Foundation. This year, there are 20 in the class of Genius Grant recipients. Boston University professor Lucy Hutira is an environmental ecologist who studies carbon dynamics in forests and urban areas. She's one of four local awardees, part of our series we call The Genius Next Door. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.